my wife used to have a hard time getting up in the morning. And in college, she decided to put a sign above her bed to remind her, to encourage her, to motivate her to get up. And the sign read, If Christ rose from the dead, then surely I can raise from my bed. I must admit my wife is pretty creative, to say the least. But I ask you seriously, what if my wife was wrong? What if Christ hadn't risen from the dead? Paul the Apostle answers this question in 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 19, and he says this, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrection, we are still dead in our sins. Without the resurrection, we are still enemies of God. Without the resurrection, we are still enslaved to the world, the flesh, and Satan. Without the resurrection, we have no hope of eternal life with God. Without the resurrection, Christianity is just another false religion. The resurrection is essential to our faith and the gospel message that we preach. The resurrection flows into all other Christian truths and doctrines. And this morning, we come together to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Adrian Rogers once said, Jesus Christ is alive. He is not behind us in a tomb. He is before us in a throne. Paul, talking to the church at Corinth, says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve after he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. This morning, we don't have to speculate or wonder because we know he has risen. We call today Resurrection Sunday, the day our Lord conquered the grave. This was a day of celebration to the early church as well. It wasn't about Easter bunnies and candy, but the day our Lord and Savior rose from the dead. Many early Christians prepared their families for this day by spending hours in prayer and study of God's Word on the person of Christ Jesus, specifically focusing on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus Many early believers even fasted for 40 days at a time. And if some of us aren't very familiar with fasting, well, it's simply the practice of depriving yourself of food for a period of time and just drinking water. And again, the early Christians did this up to 40 days at a time. The resurrection of Christ was taken very seriously by the early believers. 
And we continue to celebrate in 2016 the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm sure, I'm sure many of you are very hungry after your 40-day fast as well. So be of good cheer, because in about 30 minutes, it will be time for lunch, and you can break your fast. So as we begin, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Holy Father, we praise you. You're so holy, righteous. We recognize, Father, that you saved us by sending your Son down to be beaten killed for our sakes and then rose three days later thank you thank you for this time help us to truly be in awe of Christ in Jesus name amen well this morning we are going to do something a little different because usually here at the family church we practice what is known as expository preaching which means we go verse by verse through the text, as we are in the middle of a study in the Gospel of John. But today, being Resurrection Sunday, we are going to do a standalone message on the resurrection. And I've entitled this message, The Resurrected Life. So I want to start by asking a question. Why is the resurrection so important to the Christian faith? I mean, really, what if Fox News came up to you, maybe it was Megyn Kelly or Bill O'Reilly, and they asked you, why is the resurrection so important, so significant? What would you tell them? I ask this question because it often seems like many that espouse to be believers really don't go below the surface to understand the gravity of the resurrection, they may give an answer like the resurrection is really special or it's really great and if we asked why they may say it just is but saying just is really isn't in an answer now in the presidential primaries answers like it's going to be really special and it's going to be really great seems to be sufficient but biblically God expects us to go below the surface we need to truly understand the resurrection but not just understand it but be joyful and excited about it. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We need to be able to give people a biblical answer to why we have this hope in Christ Jesus, to why we're so excited about the resurrection So again, the question, why is the resurrection so significant, so important to us? Well, this leads to point number one. The resurrection proves Christ is the Messiah. Point number one says the resurrection proves that Christ is the Messiah. I mean, think about it. Without the resurrection, who is Christ? What if Christ was crucified and buried in the grave and hadn't risen from the dead. 
He would have been like any other charismatic leader of his day that influenced people to do good, to help the poor, to serve the less fortunate, and then died. But worse, because he claimed to be God in the flesh, which would have been proved to be a lie. So at best, without the resurrection, he was a misguided leader who thought he was God. Christ was still in the grave. Then we wouldn't be here today. What would, we, what would the use be of worshiping a dead Savior? What use would we have for the Bible if he hadn't risen from the grave? I mean, the whole Bible points centers on Christ Jesus. The Old Testament, the Law of the Prophets, look forward with anticipation to Christ as Christ fulfilled the Old Testament while the New Testament looks back to Christ as the apostles teachings in the church is built on the foundation of Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. But the reality is Christ is God. He is Messiah. He is Lord and Savior. He is the great I am. He is the good shepherd. He is part of the Godhead. And death had no hold on him. Death could not finish the job because Christ was greater, more powerful than the power of death. Amen? And as we think about Christianity, as we consider any truth found in Scripture, as we go about living out the Christian faith, as we train our children to be godly, as we walk in a marriage that pleases God, as we learn to serve one another, let us remember without the resurrection of Christ, none of it matters. It is all futile if Christ hadn't risen from the grave. John MacArthur says it this way, The truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of the gospel. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. I would ask us this morning, what is our view of Christ? Do we believe that he was just a good man or a prophet? Or do we believe he is the risen son of God? The resurrection of Christ separates him from all other men. Christ is both God and man simultaneously. Christ is the only Lord and Savior who calls us this morning to repent and believe that he is the only God. Amen? But another question is, why did Christ have to die and rise from the grave again? What was the problem that exacerbated or led to the death of the Son of God? I mean, what was so bad? What was so impossible? What was so hard that God himself had to come down and save us? So what I'm trying to ask is what did we need to be saved from? And the short answer is God. The short answer is God. Christ was sacrificed on the cross to save us from the wrath of God, the Bible says. So in other words, it took the sacrifice of Christ, who was God, to save us from the wrath of God. The question you may be thinking is, why was God so angry at humanity? What was the problem? was so bad about humanity that Christ had to come to this earth and be sacrificed for mankind? I mean, if you ask anyone if they are a bad person, most of them will say, no, I'm not a bad person. I try to be good. I'm a good person. 
So my question is, why would Christ have to come to earth to die for a bunch of good people? They did a study on prisoners who committed horrible crimes like murder, and they asked the criminals individually if they were a good person or a bad person. And do you know what a resounding 95% of them said? They're good people that just made some mistakes. So what's the disconnect? What's the problem here? How can God's wrath be on people who think they are naturally really good people? What's the problem? Proverbs 21.2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So we see here in Proverbs 21, and then again in Proverbs 16, and there's some other places in Proverbs I could have pointed to as well, that naturally lets us know that we think we are better or higher than we actually are. And we think often our motives are more innocent and pure than they actually are. That's why when I'm in a fight with my wife, she is obviously wrong. What is the matter with her? Well, I'm just trying to enlighten her and help her out. I'm a biblical counselor and a pastor. She needs to take my counsel, right? Can someone please explain this to my wife and let her know that I am always innocent and pure and I am always right in everything I say. And I say that with all humility. (laughs) I'm obviously joking, but in the heat of the moment, in a dispute with someone, our dogmatic supposed rightness comes out of our hearts and our arguments. Jeremiah 17, 9, a verse that we often used, says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Scripture shows us that we are deceived by our own hearts. We consider our ways right without often even hearing the other person out. But man, it just feels so right. It just feels so good to believe my own propaganda about myself that I am right and that I am pure and innocent while other people are clearly wrong if their viewpoint does not line up with mine. Amen? Instead of listening to our own hearts, we need to let Scripture be our guide. We need God's Word to challenge our perspectives. We need to diagnose, examine ourselves with the inerrant, infallible Word of God, as Casey preached a few weeks ago. So let's listen to Romans 3, which sort of wakes us up of the reality of who we truly are. Romans 3, you can turn there with me. I'm going to be in verse 10, and I'm going to go all the way to verse 18. I like to hear the Bibles turning. I know some people have phones, so you can't hear the pages, but Romans 
There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of viper is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Scripture says no one is righteous before they come to Christ. No one is good. Why? Because they live for themselves instead of God. Humanity wants to live their own way instead of live for Christ. Scripture says naturally we are not good at all, but very opposite of good. We are wicked and evil, the Scriptures say, before we're in Christ. And that is why people in general are under the wrath of God. We've all inherited original sin. It's the sin that came from Adam. And because we are born with it, we don't even realize how sinful, how wicked we truly are. Naturally. Let me give an example. I give examples of all my children, but I'll give an example of my youngest, youngest one. I don't think I've given a lot of examples. But his name's Joby, and he's two years old. And when he gets hurt, he will fall somehow, and then he will come to me. He calls me Daddy-O, and he says, Daddy-O, Daddy-O, Lukey hurt me. Lukey's our five-year-old. He's our oldest. And Joby will literally say, Luke pushed him down, or Luke hit him, and then I sort of figure out what's going on, and I realize Luke wasn't even in the same room with him at the time. I mean, it really makes no sense. He does not gain anything by blaming Luke at all. There does not seem to be any coherent reasoning behind his blatant lying. And yet, there is a good reason. There is a good explanation to why he does this. And the answer is his little sinful heart. His little sinful heart is doing what it does best. It deceives him, as again Jeremiah 17.9 tells us. And then it continues sinning until mommy and daddy lovingly will correct him and discipline him the way the Bible says to, to deal with that which is in his heart. So my son Joby sins because he's a sinner. We sin because we're sinners. And this is why Christ had to die. Because our sin brought us under the wrath of God. It separated us from God. We were in rebellion to God. And you may be thinking at this point, wow, this is really encouraging. For Easter, this is really great. This is such a downer to talk about this sin stuff. Well, let me say that if we don't have an understanding of what Christ did for us or why he came, we're not going to really understand who Christ is. Honestly, the gospel does not make sense if Christ came to this earth to save a bunch of good people from something. We don't know what it was, but something. But if we begin to recognize the reality of our sinfulness, we recognize how awful we were before we came to Christ, then then we can then begin to be in awe of what Christ has done for us. Amen? Our sin was great, but God's grace was even greater. Amen? 
It's the perspective of seeing the clarity of our sinfulness to grasp the gravity of the grace that has been generously poured out on all of us who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ. Which leads to point number two. The resurrection reconciles us back to God. The resurrection reconciles us back to God. Romans 5, 9 through 11, I think Luke already read this. Thank you, Luke. Um, says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Moreover, that we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is good news. This should cause us to jump for joy. We should be able to work through the toughest of situations and circumstances, walk through the worst of sufferings, knowing that Christ saved us from the wrath of God. The resurrection sealed the deal. The resurrection completed the transaction. The resurrection finalized our fellowship back to God the Father. The question is, are you justified by Christ this morning? Have you turned to Christ in repentance and faith? Those that have repented and believed in Christ Jesus are no longer under the wrath of God, but now are redeemed children of God. What about our sinfulness? Have you seen the reality of your wickedness this morning? When fear or anger or lust rises out of our hearts, we should call it what it is, and it's called sin. We can't blame others for our sins. We can't blame being tired or sick for our bad behaviors. We need to own our sin and confess our sin to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But another question is, what does the resurrection mean for those of us in Christ Jesus? We've already seen through the resurrection we have fellowship with God. We have relationship with the almighty creator of the universe. We are saved from the wrath of God. But what are some of the other blessings we receive from the resurrection as believers in Christ Jesus? I think to answer this question adequately, I think I would need the rest of eternity to show all the blessings we receive from the resurrection. But since I only have, I think, about 15 minutes left, I guess I'll try to do my best to scratch the surface on such a deep question. But blessing number one, the resurrection gives us hope in a person. The resurrection gives us hope in a person. The believer's hope isn't like the world's hope. It's not the hope that says, well, I hope it doesn't rain today, or I hope the car won't break down, or I hope... My children that are usually here are listening, but they're not. I hope all the adults are listening. No, it's not that sort of hope. J. Adams calls this a hope-so sort of hope. It's not something we can rely on for certain. It's not 
a hope that is based on a good feeling or circumstances going our way or but biblically we can take our hope to the bank because our hope is focused and built on Christ Jesus the resurrection assures us that Christ will keep us that he will protect us Christ will keep us safe and secure in the arms of God Romans 8 31 through 35 says this If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If God is the one who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God or Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Our passage reminds us that it is God who keeps us safe. Amen? We are protected by Christ. And it's not that we are so faithful or that we are so perfect or that we are so righteous, but just the opposite, that Christ is so faithful, so righteous, and so perfect. Amen? I wonder this morning if we're placing our hope in the risen Lord. If we wake up and rest assured that we are under the authority of Christ Jesus. Or... Are we putting our hope in the things of this world, like our finances, or our toys, or our good looks, or maybe we are putting our hope in our own strength? Another question to ask is how does a resurrection actually transform us? How does the resurrection help us live for Christ now in the present moment in this world system that we're in? Well, let's look back at Romans 8 again. Romans 8, 9 through 11. And it says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. In these passages, Paul is comparing the believer in Christ to the unbeliever. And he says that the believer has the Holy Spirit living inside him, while the unbeliever is still totally controlled by the flesh, the sinful nature, the carnal nature, I think the KJV calls it. And then Paul tells us something astonishing. He tells us something magnificent. He tells us something mind-blowing. Verse 11 says that the Holy Spirit, which raised Christ from the dead, now lives, resides in those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Which leads to blessing number two. The resurrection empowers us 
to live a new life. The resurrection empowers us to live a new life. What raised Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit, now lives in those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We have that same power that resides inside of us. It's not that we think a little different or that our perspectives have been tweaked or changed a little bit or that we are learning to be positive thinkers. No, Scripture says we are altogether different. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, the same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead now lives in each one of us. Amen? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The resurrection, church, reminds us that the Holy Spirit, who is God, is working mightily through us. We can have hope with the struggles that we're facing this morning. Maybe we struggle with anger, or maybe we're dealing with fear or unforgiveness or addictions or some sort of tragedy. Well, it's not up to us to change. It's up to us to depend on Christ. It's up to us to walk in the Spirit, the Bible says. Galatians 5 tells us, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You may be thinking, What in the world does that mean, to walk by the Spirit, right? Well, the first way we walk by the Spirit, number one, we live out God's Word. The first way we walk by the Spirit, number one, is we live out God's Word. Ephesians 6.17 says that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. So we get a picture of the Holy Spirit using Scripture like a sword to pierce our hearts. For example, when I turn to Ephesians 5, it tells me as a husband to love my wife like Christ loved the church. Ah! Instantly it brings conviction to my soul. I begin to examine myself where I'm not loving my wife and I consider ways of loving her better. This is how the Holy Spirit works in us. This is what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. This is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God like a sword to pierce our hearts. Another aspect of walking by the Spirit is, number two, we live on our knees. Another aspect of walking by the Spirit is that we live on our knees. What does our prayer life look like this morning? When we pray, we are showing our dependence on God instead of ourselves. It reveals our relationship with God. And that's why it's so important for us to study God's word and bathe our lives in prayer. Scripture tells us to pray on all occasions. A prayerful life is a spirit-filled life. James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. A prayer warrior who knows God's word is a scary thing to our enemy. 
going back to my example about the Holy Spirit using Scripture to convict me about loving my wife, well, maybe after I feel conviction, I pray about it and ask God to give me clarity on how I can love her better. And after I prayed about it, then God leads me to 1 Peter 3.7, which says this, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we can see that through prayer, God gave me clarity on how to love my wife better by taking me to 1 Peter, as it says, to live with my wife in an understanding way. I hope the husbands are taking notes. Which tells me I need to be a learner of my wife. I can love her better by asking more questions, by being a better listener. To by being more attentive to her in general. Amen? This is how prayer works. It's powerful. Prayer is often ignored in a distracting world. But biblically we see it is a must for us to be faithful to Christ Jesus. I wonder if we study God's word diligently and if we spend time on our knees in prayer daily. Like eating and drinking is to the body, so is spending time in prayer and studying God's word is to the soul. In conclusion, the resurrection proved Christ is Lord. The resurrection reconciles us back to God. The resurrection gives us hope as believers. The resurrection gives us life. The resurrection is what's freed us from the wrath of God. The resurrection brings dead people back to life. The resurrection gives us access to the Father. The resurrection empowers us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit instead of being in controlled and in bondage to the flesh. And finally, the resurrection reminds us that one day we will be raised to life and we will spend an eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Holy Father, how in awe we are of you, of the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, recognizing that you saved wretches like us that deserve nothing. We deserve your wrath. And you give us your son. You give us life. But you don't only just give us life, but you empower us with your spirit to live a victorious Christian walk on this earth that we can be faithful to you, that we can continue to walk in repentance, walk against the sin that so easily entangles us as believers, and we continue, even as we struggle with sin, you continue to pour your grace on us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. Help us to have a bigger view of you Help us to be in awe of who you are and to think less of ourselves. Thank you for everyone coming here. We thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Christ, we pray. Amen.